What's up, listeners? Before we get started, we wanted to invite you to Raw Talk's upcoming event, Medicine Meets Machine. The emerging role of artificial intelligence in healthcare. Join us on May 7th for some awesome panel discussions, followed by a networking event. We got refreshments. We got food. We got a bouncy castle. Max, don't Soleil, give it all away. John Stamos. Check out the event page link in the show notes. So without further ado, welcome to episode 59 of Raw Talk. Are you ready to get personal? Hi listeners, I'm Grace. And I'm Max. Today's episode is a special one for us. Max and I met because of one of the studies that we're going to talk about today. Our first experience with research was when we both spent a summer in Dr. Jim Kennedy's neurogenetics lab, working on genotyping for studies aimed at personalizing psychiatric treatment. We learned a lot that summer, including that we both wanted to do graduate school. From Dr. Kennedy, director of the Tannenbaum Center for Pharmacogenetics, as well as our second guest, Dr. Daniel Mueller, head of the Pharmacogenetics Research Clinic, also at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. We also sat down with Dr. Christine Baer, a senior scientist in the Molecular Medicine Department at the SickKids Research Institute. She's also the director of the Program for Individualized Cystic Fibrosis Therapy, or CFIT. This is a collaborative program aimed at developing the resources and tools necessary for achieving a precision medicine approach for treating cystic fibrosis. We're excited to explore the topic of personalized medicine, since it's so, well, personal. As our understanding of human genetics increases, we are discovering why we differ so much in everything from what symptoms we present with to how we respond to treatments. For example, many people react badly to certain antibiotics, while others don't seem to react at all. In fact, when prescribing drugs to patients, the differences in outcomes can be dramatic. The top-selling antidepressant, Cymbalta, only improves symptoms of depression in one patient for every five prescribed the drug. The same goes for Crestor, the leading high-cholesterol medication with only 1 in 20 patients showing improvement. So why do people differ so much in how they respond to the same treatment for the same condition? Well, it turns out that our genetic makeup plays a huge role in everything from how we metabolize drugs to whether or not we even have the receptors capable of binding them. As our understanding of how our genes influence our response to medication grows, it's transforming the drug industry. Not every treatment works for every patient, and this idea is revolutionizing the way we practice medicine. One area where personalized medicine is really taking off is in how we approach cancer treatments. And this method is something that we are starting to see spreading throughout the scientific and medical community, with personalized medicine becoming a very hot topic. But it's also a very broad topic, and we wanted to hear from some experts about what exactly personalized medicine means in a scientific context. We sat down with our mentors, Dr. Kennedy and Dr. Mueller, and asked them, what exactly is personalized medicine? Personalized medicine for me is your personal DNA signature, but it also includes non-DNA factors like stress levels you have, whether you smoke or not, and your job satisfaction, and I can add a layer of epigenetics, which includes DNA modifications, which is partly influenced by the environment. So to me, that's personalized medicine is starting with the DNA and then measuring all the circles of uh, increasing complexity of the human themselves and then of their relationship to their family and then their community and all the environmental factors interacting with that person. 
Well, the idea of personalized medicine obviously is to choose and to predict a treatment or an intervention that fits the you know patient or the individual in question to that extent that the personal needs are met. If you think a little bit about medication, sometimes uh, they're rather prescribed as one size fits all kind of approach, right? And then you wait and see. And uh, if you're lucky, things things work well without side effects. But if uh, they don't, you might have to switch medications over and over again, right? I would think that the concept of person's medicine could be seen in two ways. Uh, in a broader sense, medicine and psychiatry has probably ever since been to some extent personalized just by clinical experience. You would uh, certainly choose certain medications based on the symptom profile. You would uh, maybe adjust the dose based on the age of the patient or the gender. You would probably also take you know, into account pre-existing medication or coexisting medications. Um, in a certain way, personal medicine just really means that you are treating a special individual with, with all kind of facets that are you know attached to to that person. But in a, in a more modern sense, personalized medicine rather applies to typically what we would call biomarker-driven medicine, which is uh, you would also consider biological uh, measures such as genetics, for example, in order to make a more precise estimate of which medication might better serve the purpose. As Dr. Kennedy and Dr. Mueller mentioned, people experience many side effects from psychiatric medications. Because of this, drugs are often prescribed on a trial-and-error basis over periods of weeks to months to years. This can have a huge impact on somebody's life. We wanted to know what some of these side effects were. Let's start with antidepressants. Um, most, you know, most of the time, people will complain about some um, gastrointestinal symptoms in the beginning, in the first weeks. They will maybe feel some, somewhat nauseated. Some people feel over-sedated. Some people feel restless. So these are typical side effects at the beginning of an antidepressant treatment. Now, the good news is that these effects often tend to go away if people are willing to, to tolerate them. And the recommendation here is to go slow with, with the medication and, uh, you know, to get the organism uh, time to adjust, right? Other common side effects with, with most antidepressants, and people do not usually like to talk about them, uh, you know, neither the physicians, I'm saying, neither the patients, are sexual side effects, but they're quite common. And why? Because antidepressants can affect, uh, you know, basically the three levels of sexuality, which is um, the wanting, the libido, the physiological reaction, you know, the physio you know, physiological predisposition. So, you know, we're talking about, uh, uh, you know, erectile dysfunction in men or, or, you know, lubrication problems in females. And third, orgasmic dysfunction, which is often described as delayed orgasm, uh, where people, uh, you know, really struggle with, uh, you know, having uh, their, their sexuality in a, in a fulfilling way. And I'm saying this because, again, it's often then not verbalized and patients then tend to not take the medications when they notice that, but they don't inform the doctors because they might be a bit too embarrassed. And again, some doctors also may not want to talk about that uh, all the time. So it's important, however, to know and, and I would always, you know, argue to, uh, uh, to bring it up, you know, in any kind of conversation. Well, and then there can be, with antidepressants, and that's important for young people, there can be the paradox effect that, you know, some antidepressants cause 
restlessness in young people and it might do so also in, in adults, but typically for some reason it's often more pronounced in, in, in younger people. We talk about people you know, in, in adolescent age and maybe early adults. And this restlessness, which is you know, extremely unpleasant, has sometimes probably provoked suicidal acts. So some people who have felt this restlessness, they, they were already, let's say, um, low in mood. They were already desperate. And now they feel this, this, this kind of torturing restlessness. And, and, and then sometimes impulsively, they might just act upon that by killing themselves. And that's why it's extremely important also to discuss that at the beginning of the treatment and say, if you, if you feel restless, stop the medication immediately and come to see me again rather than to, you know, uh, not say anything and misjudging uh, this as a kind of unevitable uh, situation, right? And then, unfortunately, we often see metabolic side effects. Uh, people will become more hungry, if you wish. They get more, uh, they get more appetite and they eat more. And by that, of course, they then can, can become obese and uh, develop diabetes, for example. That is, uh, you know, side effects in about 30% or so of people taking antipsychotic medication that should also be addressed right at the beginning and discussed how to avoid it because there are things that can be done to avoid uh, weight gain but they should be discussed again early on to dive further into what constitutes pharmacogenetics dr Mueller told us about why some people experience these side effects and why some don't pharmacogenetics and personal medicine is all about reducing the likelihood of developing these side effects right if we look 10 or 15 years ago, we had no genetic marker. Now we have genetic markers, and it does make a difference in many people. It has helped many people to avoid these side effects. And with more research, we hope that we get even further and further to identify other genetic markers and whatnot that will even allow us to predict more side effects than we already can. People's DNA sequence vary substantially, and that can affect also um, enzymes which metabolize medication. But, you know, we're talking about common variations. We're not talking about super rare or rare variants, which might also affect medication treatment. But we're talking about those common variants and uh, which might have randomly or, or maybe through um, evolutionary pressure evolved and also sometimes more in certain ethnic groups than in others, right? We know that metabolizer rates, for example, can vary dramatically between ethnic groups. And what I typically like to tell the students is to take the example of alcohol. <clears throat> and now everyone smiles typically at this moment. Um, take the example of alcohol where you know that uh, certain people, mostly from Asian countries, East Asian countries, uh, like 10 to 20% do not tolerate alcohol very well. And that's because uh, they have a phase one enzyme, uh, ALDH2, where they have genetic variants which uh, makes them to become slow metabolizers, which reduces the enzymatic activity in these individuals. And as a byproduct of alcohol metabolism, acetaldehyde is being created, and this acetaldehyde is extremely toxic and definitely also causes all those symptoms that you know we can see in these people. However, with a rapid metabolism, acetaldehyde would not accumulate and would not cause these symptoms. But if you now have an enzymatic lowered activity, acetaldehyde can accumulate and cause all these problems, right? And now, obviously, imagine now that alcohol would be a medication. Here we go. 
where we would see that some people would just not tolerate the medication because they metabolize it differently. And talking about phase one enzymes like ALDH2, there are other ones. Uh, they're called CYP2D6, for example, or CYP2C19. They are also extremely variable uh, in terms of their genetic variation and in terms of their enzymatic activity. And these two enzymes are extremely important in the metabolism of many, many psychiatric drugs. Taking this knowledge of the genetics of poor versus rapid metabolizers, Dr. Kennedy and Dr. Mueller work together as co-principal investigators of the IMPACT project, with one primary aim, to modernize the way that psychiatric illnesses are treated with medication. IMPACT study, it's an acronym, stands for um, Individualized Medicine, Personalized Assessment, and Clinical Treatment. And that study um, started in 2012, and its central core is delivering a panel of genetic test results to a physician who's ordered this panel as a guiding uh, set of information to help them decide which medication to prescribe for a given individual patient sitting in their office. And this is for psychiatric medications, principally antidepressants and antipsychotics. So uh, this um, strategy I had been thinking about for a number of years. The data in the literature was becoming more and more supportive, and I could see the trend and trajectory of this area, that DNA measurement was getting faster and cheaper, and there was already some very good sort of anchor genes to get good knowledge from, and those are the genes in the liver that break down 80% of all medications uh, in one way or another. And so I saw that we could get traction with those liver genes and then add on the more complex area of genetic variation in the receptors and the parts of the brain where the drug goes, where it has its action. So we created a test in the lab with a few liver enzyme genes and a dopamine gene and a serotonin gene, and that was our beginning rudimentary personalized medicine test. Based on that, done in um, you know, a few hundred patients, we were able to convince the Ontario government to fund this very promising area for an extended period of time, it was six and a half years, uh, in order that we could test patients and then follow them over time and see how the patient reacted to the test, how well did the doctor deliver the test, how well did the doctor understand the results, and what did the patient get better, did faster, did the patient have fewer side effects, because all of these are the predicted outcomes and we want to get them on the right drug early on in their psychiatric care journey and get them better faster. And that is a big help for the doctor-patient relationship. And uh, it avoids the terrible trial and error method which psychiatrists have been practicing ever since the drugs were introduced in the 60s. Trial and error in this day and age of DNA assessment uh, is just not acceptable to me. Having some decent information about your patient based on their blueprint 
is a much better way to approach prescribing medicines. One of the exciting things about the IMPACT study is that it cuts across all different disorders and is applicable for a wide range of people and their symptoms. It went across all mental health disorders. It was not a study of a particular disorder like depression or schizophrenia or bipolar or panic disorder. It was a study of the medications used in psychiatry. The medications were the starting point, not the diagnosis. But of course, we recorded the diagnosis. But we have, like in that 11,000, we have 700 bipolar patients, 600 schizophrenia patients, 3,500 depression patients, 3,000 patients with quite severe anxiety, and then, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder, and on and on. Even uh, some Alzheimer's patients, Parkinson's patients, who t tend to be put on these antipsychotic or antidepressant uh, medications. Some could say that's unfocused, but, you know, we're not doing a clinical trial. We're doing a feasibility study and a naturalistic study. This is the way doctors treat patients. To summarize the how, it's done with a simple saliva test, and we extract the DNA in our lab, and we run this panel of genes, uh, and that number can iteratively be increased as the data supports it. Once the genetic test is completed, an easily interpreted report is sent back to the physician who referred the patient. On the front page, drugs are divided into three different bins, green, yellow, and red, depending on how well they will work with that individual person. There are also recommended dosages for each drug. And if they like, they can look on the second page of the report and see the individual genotypes and the individual genes, and they can Google those genes if they like, and they can, you know, dig deeper into the interesting science of that particular patient. Integrating genetics and using a personalized approach for how a treatment is chosen for someone has implications not only for how effective that treatment will be, but also that person's experience with the healthcare system and stigma they may face. It shifts the focus onto the patient. Uh, it's their uniqueness as opposed to the doctor. Typically, and this certainly was in my training, a physician will be trying a, a number of different alternatives in all different patients. And over time, that physician will develop a kind of a familiarity of sorts clinically with a few medications. And so the doctor will choose the medication based on their comfort, their familiarity with a particular set of medications. But that leaves the patient out of the picture. So it's inherently a great idea for the medication selection to be based on the patient's biological makeup as well as their you know their family situation and stress levels as I mentioned you know it's there's genes and there's the environment they both have to be considered. But this whole emphasis of the doctor deciding with some sophisticated algorithm of uh, you start with this and then you double the dose and then if that doesn't work you add on this or you switch to that that's not based on biomarkers of what that person's body is doing inside 
It's based on statistical results from large groups of patients that average everything. Anyway, the patient feels less stigmatized because there's a scientific test based on evidence that has chosen their medication. So that invests them in the treatment, gives them more confidence in the prescription that the doctor has written because they they know that it's not so much of guesswork on to, on the part of the doctor or their own particular clinical algorithm for working through medication choices. So it's really beneficial for the patient and the doctor and, most importantly, the relationship between the patient and the doctor. The IMPACT study focuses on developing a personalized medicine approach for mental disorders, but it's becoming more and more apparent that taking a personalized medicine approach can be beneficial when it comes to treating just about any disease or condition. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about another exciting personalized medicine project coming out of Toronto. Cystic fibrosis, or CF, is a fatal genetic disease. The gene causing CF was first discovered right here in Toronto back in 1989 at SickKids Hospital. Now, 30 years later, SickKids is right at the center of a huge collaborative program, CFIT, the program for individualized cystic fibrosis therapy. Thamia spoke with Dr. Christine Baer, the director of CFIT. I've been working in the CF field for almost 30 years, which is really mind-blowing to me. And I arrived at SickKids just at the time that the CF gene was discovered. And they wanted someone with the skills that I had because they, they learned that the CF gene coded for a protein that works as a pore in membranes to allow the movement of chloride, so chlori- sodium chloride, which is salt, and water. CFTR is a gene which codes for a protein that works as a pore or a channel. It's found at the surface of cells, and it's responsible for the movement of chloride ions. Mutations in the CFTR gene can lead to a dysfunctional CFTR protein, which impairs the movement of fluid across the cell membrane and results in cystic fibrosis. So as you know, cystic fibrosis is a genetic disease. The disease itself is a life-shortening disease. It's basically progressive. So when the, the child's born, they're, they're fine. Some of them do have obstruction in their intestine, but most of the time, they're, they're fine. It's just progressive over time. There's a worsening of lung function, worsening of digestive functions as well, and reproductive function eventually. What happens in the lung is that because the CFTR chloride channel, the the pore in the membrane isn't working properly, fluid transport is impaired. And you need fluid moving in into the airways, surprisingly, because it keeps the mucus moist. And so cilia, which beat to remove bacteria from the airways, can move properly if everything is moist. But if you don't have the CFTR protein, that moisture is not there. It gets sticky, bugs get stuck. So there's recurrent infection, inflammation, and eventually that leads to um, serious damage to the lung and transplantation is often the only recourse. It's hard to imagine that this fatal disease with complications that end up affecting so many different organ systems is caused by a mutation in a single gene. What exactly is going wrong at the molecular level in patients with cystic fibrosis? So when I came, I started to understand what the CFTR protein normally does and then what different mutations do. 
So there are a large number of mutations that lead to uh, the cystic fibrosis disease phenotype, and we're still trying to understand why those mutations make the protein non-functional or not get to the right place in the cell. But we know what the major mutation does. So the major mutation, we call it Delta 508. That is found in most people with cystic fibrosis. So in Canada, there's approximately 4,600 people who have cystic fibrosis, and half of those people, close to half of those people, will have two copies of the Delta 508 mutation. The normal version of the protein, there's quite a few parts to it. It packs together tightly and it's trafficked properly to the cell surface, but that's not true for Delta 508. It doesn't pack properly and only a limited amount of it will get to the sur surface where it helps to move the fluid that I was talking about. So that's the big problem with this mutation. It's just not at the right place. And even if a little bit of it does get to the right place, it doesn't work properly as a channel. So these are the kind of studies that have happened over the past decades, understanding what the mutation does. And now there's a lot of excitement, really, over the past 10 years in learning that um, small molecule therapies can actually rescue some of these problems. Since the discovery of the CFTR gene at SickKids, a lot of work has gone towards developing small molecule therapies, or drugs, that target the CFTR protein. The drugs that are currently available mainly target the most common mutation, Delta 508. But there are hundreds of other, rarer, CF-causing mutations which are not as well characterized, and the discovery of drugs that target these mutations is limited. To make things even more complicated, even a group of patients who have the same mutation, such as Delta 508, can have huge variability in the types of symptoms they experience, the severity of these symptoms, and the response to a particular drug. So, um, for example, with the Delta 508, where there's so much problem in how the protein packs, we know inside the cell there are many other proteins that help that process. So if you don't have a proper folding protein, auxiliary protein, then that could worsen the outcome of the Delta 508. So we're understanding that there are secondary genes, we call them modifier genes, which modify disease severity. And that's coming out of huge international consortia studying um, modifier genes. So there is one Health Canada approved treatment now for Delta 508 patients who have two copies, one from their mother, one from their father. It's called Orcambi. And it's a combination drug. So there's one small molecule compound which helps the Delta 508 protein to form properly to get to the cell surface where it needs to work. And then a second one making it work properly. So it's a combination. And in theory, this should have a restorative effect on all of the Delta 508 proteins. And it does in generic cell lines inside of the lab. But once you start looking at tissues from different patients, you can see that when you add these drugs onto tissues from different patients, those tissues respond differently. And you see this in the clinic. And this is exactly why a personalized medicine approach is necessary for treating cystic fibrosis. Even patients who have identical mutations in the CFTR gene can have different responses to the drug that Dr. Bear mentions, or can be. In 2016, it was approved by Health Canada. It was approved um, in 2015 in the States. So we're having a lot of clinical data now. 
And Health Canada has decided not to reimburse the costs of this drug because the average response is modest. That doesn't mean that there are not people that respond very well, but there's also people that respond very poorly. So the average is, is modest. And because that average is modest, Health Canada has said no, we're not reimbursing. But that is a, a big, big problem for CF patients because it's the only drug that targets that delta-5 weight mutation. There are other treatments that they're getting are basically treating the symptoms. But there was nothing until Orcambi which would treat the basic defect. And some people respond really well. And that's the stories that the patients and their parents are hearing. My kid or I could be responding really well. But there's no way that I can afford this drug, which is $300,000 a year per, per patient. And not all insurance companies agree to fork over that amount of money either. And if you don't happen to work for a company, your parent doesn't work for a company that has an insurance plan, you're out of luck. It's just a, a real sense of injustice that these, these patients have. And that's why there's a need to have some kind of predictive tool. A doctor can agree that someone should go on to or can be on a case-by-case -case basis, and after they decide yes or no, um, then it's up to the insurance companies whether it's going to be uh, compensated or not. But if there was some way that we could say, well, this person would do really well, you should reimburse this patient because it's going to save their life. That's, that's the goal of some of the work that we're doing now, to develop those types of tests. Dr. Bear shared an example of such a predictive test that has been developed in the Netherlands. What they're doing in the, the Netherlands right now is they're taking biopsies from every CF patient and testing what little tissue avatars they make. They make tissue avatars from the biopsies, so they're, they're called organoids. Organoids can be thought of as simplified, miniature versions of an organ. They're made from a small sample of cells that are taken from a patient. As Dr. Baer refers to them, they can be essentially thought of as avatars, a representation of a specific patient's tissue that has an identical genetic background to that patient. They test these avatars, these organoids, for the available drugs to see if the, the avatars respond. And they've been doing this now for hundreds of patients. So they're not only looking at the Delta 5 weight, but they're also looking at other mutations which are rare, for which there is no drug available, and asking, will or can be work on these? Or will any of the other, the other available drugs, like Kaleidico, work on these? Because they've looked at so many patients now, they're starting to develop convincing correlations between what they can see on the avatars in the lab and what's happening in terms of the patient outcomes. And the correlations are looking good, and they're, they're really turning heads all over, over the world. Back here in Toronto, the CFIT program is paving the way to a personalized medicine approach for treating CF. The goal of the program is to create a comprehensive resource with patient-derived stem cells, genetic data, and detailed clinical information. Dr. Baer told us a little bit more about how it got started. The CFIT program is basically a partnership, a partnership between CF Canada, 
CF Canada is the major uh, charity which funds research and a lot of clinical work in Canada. So the Sick Kids Foundation and CF Canada decided to fund this work. And what they're funding is um, the generation of stem cells from each one of the donors. So we, it's called, we also call it the 100 cell line project because we're collecting from 100 individuals trying to cover the types of mutations and the frequency of those mutations that we see in Canada. And we're up to 80 of the 100, so we're, we're getting there. And that started back in uh, 2016. That's when we started our first collection, and then it goes to 2020. And by that time, we're well on our way to getting our, our 100. To start, we're getting a swab of nasal tissue from each patient, so that's not as, as intrusive, and it's really continuous with the airway. That's the part of the, the body which is most effective. And again, we're making these little avatars from the nasal tissue and testing drugs on, on these tissues. So that's what we're doing in Toronto. At the same time that we're looking at avatar responses, we're using a stem cell approach to make all of the different tissues that are affected. Now, this is really cool. Cells that are obtained from a patient, like from a nasal swab, can be reprogrammed in the lab to become stem cells. These stem cells will then have an identical genetic background to the patient, including their specific CF-causing mutation. Patient-derived stem cells can then be differentiated into just about any different cell type that can be found in the body, including those that are affected by cystic fibrosis, but are much less accessible. I mentioned that the lung is most severely affected, but the intestine is affected. The pancreas, there's no way to really access the pancreas and test that. Reproductive tract the bile duct, all of these tissues we can make by differentiating stem cells into those, those tissues. And Toronto is a real hub of stem cell biologists. Janet Rossant, who is our CEO as, uh, um, of research at SickKids, she came up with a protocol and her um, postdoc at the time, Amy Wong, who is, is now uh, a scientist here, a protocol for turning stem cells, iPSCs, into lung. And Gordon Keller, we're collaborating with him, he makes bile duct cells, he's working on a way to make pancreatic cells. There are well-established ways to make intestinal cells. So we can make every affected tissue and basically not only look at each person's lung, but each person's different tissue to see if there's going to be tissues specific responses to these drugs. In addition to all the local stem cell experts who are collaborating on this project, a big benefit of having CFIT centralized in Toronto is that a lot of the patients come from SickKids Hospital, which has thorough clinical data for each of them. The clinical component of this work is being led by Dr. Felix Ratchin, who is featured way back on episode 14 of Raw Talk. Two big components of this that I haven't talked about too much so far is a huge clinical component. So most of these people are individuals from sick kids where there's really comprehensive clinical data, measurements of how they do on the drug. Most of them are from sick kids, but we're also recruiting from around Canada. So all of the provinces have sent people to sick kids to have cells taken and models made. And we're even starting to recruit from um, international places. And the states, they're coming. This resource that we're creating of methods, stem cells, and genomic information, so 
really in-depth genomic information is also being generated for each one of these individuals. Lisa Strug is in charge of that component. I didn't mention before, Felix Ratchin is in charge of the clinical component. And she's using really state-of-the-art um, sequencing methods to get a really deep read of uh, the sequence for all of these individuals. We are hoping to have an avatar-based predictive tool, but we might end up having a gene chip. So these polymorphisms and other genes will predict how well a patient will respond. So we're going to have maybe a series of different tests that could be used as predictive tests. We're getting towards the end of our program and all of the collection. And what we've collected is a resource for CF researchers and clinicians around the world. And they only have to pay for shipping to get stem cells from people with a very comprehensive clinical um, description and also deep sequencing done. So we're going to be in a place where we're going to have multiple patients tested, we'll be able to correlate their drug responses in the plate, in the lab, to what's happening in the clinics. And we're not there yet, but the correlations are good so far. We need more patients. But I hope we're at a point where we're going to be able to offer this as, as a tool for the family doctor who needs to make a case to the insurance company that this person is worth the risk and eventually turn it into a tool that regulatory agencies that, in health, that Health Canada refers to will also use this as a tool. This is one of the goals of the CFIT program, to develop a predictive tool. Dr. Baer also told us about some exciting ways that the resources and tools coming out of CFIT could be used by other researchers in the future. Now with um, gene editing tools becoming more prominent in terms of, of thinking about how to cure genetic disease. People are developing ways to correct the mutation in patient-derived tissues. And you could imagine a very effective way to do that is using some of the model systems that we have here. But at the same time, we're learning the methods to correct that mutation. In decades from now, you can imagine a a scenario where you might want to get rid of CF disease altogether, whereas that is light years away from where we are, but step by step, we're learning how to correct the mutation. I think one, one um, step that might be foreseeable is that you could correct the mutation in someone's stem cells and then do a cell replacement into, into that person. So example might be that you correct the stem cells from somebody and then generate pancreatic duct from that person using a differentiation method and then introduce it back to that person and not have the risk of rejection because it's their own tissue that has been used to make an artificial duct. Now that's about as personal as you can get, using a person's own cells to make tissues for transplants. Another future application of CFIT is as a tool for drug discovery. As we mentioned earlier, the drugs available for the rare CF-causing mutations are basically non-existent. Having a bank of stem cells that can represent all of these different mutations means that any newly discovered prospective drugs can be tested on them. Dr. Baer told us about one such rare mutation. 
So we've got a number of stem cell lines from different individuals with this mutation. It's very, very rare, especially in the homozygous form. And we've learned now how to fill a 96-well plate with avatars with this particular mutation to do drug testing for that. And we're starting to see some hits come out of that. So because stem cells are really a renewable source of tissue, you can keep going back to the same vial of cells, recreate the tissue that you're interested in, and test new interventions that come down the line. Like CFIT, the IMPACT project is making a difference in personalized medicine. It has recently come to an end, having recruited over 11,000 patients over the last seven years. We've just published a big paper on 2,000 family doctors who ordered the test, and uh, that paper shows beyond doubt that primary care and family doc physicians can use this test easily and effectively, and the patients have fewer side effects and get to recovery. The, the remission rate, meaning they got all the way to better, is, is much higher in the genetically tested group than in the treatment as usual, just, you know, do the trial and error approach. So it's clinically how the impact study has been very successful. And the, the doctors were overwhelmingly positive about the test, you know, well, more than 80% endorsed it as working very well with their patients. And they, I think 86% agreed that it would become a gold standard in the future. So that's been a very uh, positive outcome of the impact study. Dr. Kennedy is currently working to fund the next steps of the study. We can do a lot of great science on the 11,000 patients we've already tested over the last uh, seven years. And we want to create some small clinical trials of different uh, new additions to the test for more brain genes in particular. <clears throat> and the only way to validate those genes is to run a proper clinical trial comparing one group that gets the test to a group who doesn't and people are randomized to those two groups and the raters are blind and you know randomized controlled trial. A number of us here um, are working on the design of IMPACT 2.0. So 1.0 that I've just been describing to you evaluated uh, whether the test is usable whether is it user-friendly, how do the patients react to it, how do the doctors react to it, and how does it work with side effects prediction, how does it work with patients getting better faster, and I mentioned the big finding was um, a much better total recovery rate in the patients who get the test versus patients who don't. We're also, we've uh, launched and almost completed a study with um, a major insurance company, in Canada where we're testing their patients who are on disability, they're off work due to depression or severe anxiety or mental health problems. And so we're in a project with them. We've collected uh, 150 patients who are on disability. So that's leading 
to the whole uh, economic argument that this testing saves money for the healthcare system. And in disability patients, they're very costly to the insurance company. It's costly to the employer because they're not at work. And it's costly to the healthcare system because they're, you know, visiting their doctor and trying to adjust things. And, you know, that leads to a very unpleasant situation for the patient and a, a costly situation for the insurance company and for the healthcare provider, which in our case is the government of Ontario. We got the patients to um, report on scales, uh, proper questionnaires for the depression symptoms, anxiety symptoms, and side effects, and psychotic symptoms, if they had those, uh, at baseline when they got the test, and then at four weeks later and at eight weeks later after the doctor had chosen the medication based on the test. But a large group of doctors might, for various clinical good reasons, not want to change the medication because it's very disruptive for the patient. They're uh, kind of a control group because they're not following the guidance of the test. So we can compare those uh, who, they all got the test, but some followed the test and some didn't. So that's where we can show the efficacy of the test. Uh, We had enough funds to run um, these DNA chips that scan across all the chromosomes. We were able to do uh, 3,800 of these people on these, um, they're called genome scan chips, and they look at every site on every chromosome across the whole human genome. So you can then... um, reach in and test whatever set of genes you're interested in. You know, the dopamine genes are very important for antipsychotic function. Uh, The serotonin genes are important for depression. The IMPACT study has provided compelling evidence that integrating this pharmacogenetic test into the treatment process for a range of psychiatric illnesses can have huge benefits for people by finding ideal medications and doses more quickly and with fewer side effects. But how does this project get translated from the bench to the bedside? It's been shown to have utility, but how does this get through to the people, to Canadians? I've been working on that issue for all the years of the study, and we've put in an application to the Ministry of Health to have this test uh, reimbursed by uh, OHIP through health insurance. And there's data from our uh, our partner in this industry. They had worked out all the delivery issues of getting it to the doctors through a web-based portal. So our volume of delivering uh, the test to patients greatly increased. And we showed basically that it's very scalable. And, you know, we could get it out to... For example, there's about 160,000 people in Ontario who have uh, medium to severe depression right now, and probably 70% of them could have uh, some improvements to their medication. So we're talking like uh, we we should be getting the test to over 100,000 people, and that's a per year basis. So next year... There's going to be another 160,000 and another 160,000. And that's just for depression. 
and we have anxiety and OCD and schizophrenia and bipolar and so on. So there's a lot of people that need this test. We're working with the Ontario Health uh, Database, the OHIP billing database, which is ICES, what I call ICES, and that has all 13 million citizens of Ontario registered through their OHIP numbers and with proper um, privacy and anonymization so we can get the spending on each of the 11,000 patients that we've tested. We can get back from the database because we got our patients' healthcare numbers. In any case, we got a pretty good uh, estimation of the healthcare economics and we can compare the cost before they got the test and we in the same person compare after and also the ICS database can create a control group uh, age sex demographically match socioeconomic status match to our 11,000 patients another group of patients with a similar well with the same working diagnosis let's say you know a bunch with 3,000 with depression, 3,000 anxiety. And we can compare the healthcare costs in those people who had the same illness, the same severity with our patients in impact who got the test. And we hypothesize that they will cost the healthcare system less over the year and the next year following the doctor using the guidance of the genetic test. And uh, in some studies uh, done in the United States already with similar tests, a major depression patient will cost $8,000 under normal trial and error circumstances. And a similar patient, but who does get the genetic test, only costs $3,000. So that's in the 12 months following them presenting themselves to the doctor for help. So that's a $5,000 savings per patient. And uh, when you start multiplying that by 100,000 patients, you get into very big numbers for saving money for our healthcare system. Catherine Varelli is a student in the Translational Research Program, TRP, at the University of Toronto. She's working with Dr. Kennedy on next steps for the impact study. She told us a bit more about her project, which focuses on what barriers there are between technology innovation and translating it for use by the public. One barrier to getting this kind of technology accepted, certainly by the government, but also just in disseminating it throughout the population, is that we don't currently really understand the end user or the patient need for this testing. So impact just wrapped up. We had some informal evidence that patients really liked the test because they were calling after the test ended saying, you know, where's my test? I want the test. (laughs) But there's no formal needs assessment. And without that, anyone who's versed in entrepreneurship can tell you that if you don't understand your end user need, you risk 
um, spending all kinds of money to offer a service that no one wants. So we want to characterize the patient need and therefore have a better idea of what's important to them about pharmacogenetic testing being implemented. So that's what my project is. I'm doing first a focus group with impact patients to get their feedback because they're users of pharmacogenetic tests. They have really valuable information there. And at that focus group, I also want to understand what's most important to them to consider when it does come time for implementation. So things like how much would it be acceptable to charge for this kind of thing if we had to distribute it through the private sector? Who has to have access to the bins or the results in order for it to be most effective to them? Yeah, one of the things that Catherine and I are working on is patient empowerment. Another great thing about personalized medicine is that as soon as the patient sees this uh, information about their DNA and how these drugs are classified, they get an inherently better understanding of the pros and cons of figuring out which medication out of the 35 or so that are available in terms of antidepressants, let's say, which one is right for them and, you know, some of them are kind of okay. So the patient is now driving some of the energy, the, the demand for this test because it's evidence-based and they have an inherent good sense that DNA is an information molecule and so of course it's complicated and it's far from perfect but we are pretty, we're quite good at accurately measuring the DNA. What we're not so good at is measuring all these other factors in the life of the patient, stress levels and so on. But the patients are really um, getting behind this test because it's their own personal test of their DNA, and they they own it, basically. The patient of the near-ish future will have, uh, you know, in their Apple Watch, they'll have a little emergency screen. They could have a bracelet like a diabetic would have with it, you know, stamped into the bracelet, the main genotypes they have. So there's many ways that the patient can empower themselves to give themselves a better journey through the healthcare system. Looking forward, how can we expect pharmacogenetics and personalized medicine in general to be integrated into our healthcare system? I would think in 30 years also we will have what we will call genomic medicine, where all our individual DNA is sequenced from you know for every variant that we have this sequence might either be available on servers that can be accessed by doctors or maybe if for privacy reasons we try you know we, we you know we prefer to to keep it with us in a in a small usb stick or something maybe we're going to keep it you know we're going to carry it around but definitely when we go to see the doctor or we go into a hospital or we are treated for an emergency some healthcare provider will look at the sequence and now we decide the treatment, the best treatment for us, depending on the DNA sequence. So the question now is again how to get there, right? How are we making it possible that in 30 years these things will happen and occur? And the answer is, well, let's take a look at pharmacogenetics today where we can with relatively little uh, investment with costs, uh, you know, around, a, let's say, a couple of hundred dollars, identify all the gene variants that are important and relevant and include that into our uh, medical files as, as information 
it would already work today. It can already be done. There are hospitals who do that routinely and who also would transfer the information to the, um, to the electronic health records. Now, we don't maybe have all the knowledge, all the knowledge that we wouldn't like to have. For example, we still lack research in rare variants, which might cause also a response and side effects to some people, copy number variants. We haven't really studied all of them, but with time we will study them. What is already doable is for, for a relatively little amount of money to get the DNA sequence information you know, sequenced probably in a few years for $100 per individual and storing it on some place. That is definitely there. The interpretation, the recommendations, that will follow. But I'm confident that in 30 years we will have, I mean, we will have it for everyone in our society available. Although we still have a ways to go with integrating genetics into some aspects of our healthcare system, commercially available tests or direct-to-consumer genetic tests, such as 23andMe or Ancestry.com, are available to everyone. What can we learn from these tests? And how should they be interpreted? And it's a genetic information that is not legally usable by physicians for advising patients on healthcare decisions uh, because the 23andMe test is not based on clinical trials of illnesses. It's based on very large numbers of people who've had fairly quick self-report questionnaires that they report on their symptoms. So the FDA has said in the fall of 2018, 23andMe's test is, in terms of its technology, it's accurate and it's meet standards of producing the DNA information. However, the FDA did not say that giving the test results directly back to the person without getting the help of your physician who knows a much wider amount about uh, not only medications but all you know your medical problems your family history so it's uh, it's very risky to have this information given to a person who doesn't have a coach or an interpreter as to how to use the uh, information. Dr. Kennedy has been working with large amounts of personal data for a long time. DNA from 35,000 people in just four fridges in his lab, to be precise. What are the possible consequences of the collection of this data and if a person's privacy is breached? I mean, it's an important thought experiment to try and uh, predict how a nefarious, diabolical agency, let's say, could use your DNA to uh, harm you. So the, you know, the ethics boards are very focused on the cost to the patient and society versus the benefits. I mean, there's possibilities for discrimination against people in terms of health insurance, and even in a stretch in my impact study, we identified some people who had uh, several liver enzymes that didn't work very well and put them at quite increased vulnerability to failing with a lot of medication. So a health insurance company that's um, aggressive in uh, terms of reducing their costs and eliminating clients that are, would be costly, they might discriminate against patients who have 
let's say, uncooperative genes for the more inexpensive treatments that are out there. They would not want to offer health insurance. So that is against the law in the United States and in England because they've both passed genetic non-discrimination acts. In uh, Canada, however, the legislation for our similar non-discrimination based on genetic information, that has not made it through to final approval. It's been languishing at the federal government level for a couple of years now, and I don't fully understand why. But the discrimination, not just healthcare, so um, employers might discriminate against people for doing a particular job. And an imaginative example that I sometimes give is we have a um, interesting statistical finding that's been replicated many times that the dopamine D4 receptor gene predicts people's ability to focus their attention. Basically, it predicts risk for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So let's say you're uh, running an air traffic control center and you want people with really, really good continuous focus for eight hours. And there's a lot of lives flying around in the air that are depending on that good focus to prevent airline crashes and collisions. So would society want people to be screened for this gene which has a statistical effect in predicting who would have a shorter attention span? And, you know, that's a, it's an interesting question for debate. Right now, the predictability of that gene is fairly low. It's not, you know, it has some traction. So it's not a serious question yet, but it's a nice thought experiment. And the other side of that, because, you know, evolution and its selection, these genes are not there for um, to annoy us and to get in our way of responding to medications or being air traffic controllers. These variants are there for good reason. And so if you take that same person who thinks they want to be an air traffic controller, they might be a great day trader stock picker. They may be the greatest talent to do that kind of job where things are moving fast. So that's an interesting pro and con and benefit in certain environments, liability in others and That's why the more we understand that, the better we'll be able to avoid mistakes and live our lives better. This is the way of the future, and I think it's going to be a revolution in how treatments are decided upon. It's iteratively going to get better and better. It's just a matter of time before it's very standard in medical care. The more we learn about our own biology and about how our genes influence our health and our response to treatments, the more personalized our healthcare will continue to become. Even the way we approach biomedical research is becoming more focused on this. 
It's predicted that the market for personalized medicine will show steady growth over the coming decades, and we already are seeing the impact of this new paradigm on everything from treatment approaches to how we approve new medications. Currently, a new drug under development without specific biomarker information only has an 8% chance of making it from phase 1 to approval, but those with biomarker information increases their probability of success to 26%. Often in science, we're all working on a small piece of the larger puzzle. But these large-scale projects highlight the big picture and how a direct impact can be made on people's lives. We're really happy to share this research that inspired us personally and is near and dear to our hearts. You're unique, and pretty soon your healthcare will be too. We want to thank our guests, Aunt Amber and Thamia, for creating content for this episode with us. So until next time, keep, keep it raw. raw. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawtalkpodcast.com and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw. My Twitter handle is uh, at Jim Kennedy MD. I did retweet uh, Justin Bieber, who grew up very close to me. I retweeted him uh, and his major transformation in talking about mental health. Uh, it's really remarkable. And Justin is growing up. Uh, he's 25 years old, and he's got a lot to say about mental health. So I retweeted him.